Well, I would expect that probably everybody in the room, it's nearly everybody knows about a show on television called The Biggest Loser, where like 10 or 12 people who are dangerously overweight actually come into this reality show competition to try to lose the most weight, and they stay on a ranch, and they eat the right foods, and they do the right exercises, and they start doing things, you know, that uh, they wish they would have been doing at home, I guess. And then somebody wins some obscene amount of money, I guess, at the end. But um, uh, I've seen it a few times, and what I've noticed about this is that it, it seems like in the process of every one of these dear people in their journey on the show, they come to a critical point. They come to this critical, cathartic, revelatory moment where they realize that they are not uh, dangerously overweight because they have been eating too much, but that they are that way because something is inside of them that is causing them to look at themselves wrong. And because of that, because they're not looking at themselves in the right way, something has happened. Some wound, some scar is in there that they keep staring at without being conscious about it, and it provokes, essentially, the rest of their behavior, which is so destructive. When they realize this, it's the turning point in the show. They, they, they become a different person. They approach their whole countenance changes, their whole uh, kind of testimony, if you will, changes, and they begin to make incredible progress. Well, I just think this is such, a, such an essential, essential message, if you will, or, or, or a, a, you know, a illustration for the church. Because here we are, beloved, here we are, Saved by grace, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, our papers have come through. We're sons and daughters of the living God. I mean, this is a real thing. This is not a drill. This is real. And our, our citizenship is now in heaven. We belong to God now. And that then shapes our core identity. That then affects us at the most essential part of who we are. And when we can learn to live from that core, live from that place as blood-bought, born-again, sons and daughters of the living God, then our choices change, our behaviors change, and we begin living, you know, from the inside out, if you will. Um, I, I guess what I want to tell you today is what I want to talk to you about, that here, here we are, we're, we're given this charge by the Lord as a church that he's the God of this city and that, that he's using us to to bear his image and, and bring his power and his love and his redemption into this city, that God has called us to do that, and that that's not going to happen on this corner. We're not asking people to come here. We've got enough, okay, just in case anybody's wondering. We've got enough people. I'm not, and, and thank God there are a lot of great churches in this town so that as you lead them to Christ, they can go there, okay? That's fantastic. You may not be used to hearing that kind of talk from a pastor, but... Uh, we, we got enough. We're good. And, you know, when Karen and I heard the call to plant this church 22 years ago, we prayed this prayer, God, don't, please don't send us any more people than we can love. And his view of that was obviously much bigger than ours. But anyway, my whole point is that we are not trying to get people to come here. We're going there. We are infiltrating the city as image bearers of God. And if we're going to be effective in this and helping people find their way to the Lord as we go, we need to live from that place, from that core identity 
of who we really are to live, you know, like as Dominique said just a little bit ago, as God sees us rather than as we see ourselves. Remarkable. I just love it when God's plan comes together, don't you? Let me show you a little bit about what I mean. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, Ephesians, this, was a, this is a book in your New Testament, you guys who are newer. It's, it's like about three-sixteenths of an inch from the back. It's not, okay, it's almost, you're almost done when you get there. Um, and if you come to DT100, I'll be able to tell you a lot about how all this stuff fits together. But anyway, this is, a, this is a book written by a guy named Paul, who, again, if you're new, he was a pretty big deal. He wrote a lot of the, the New Testament. And uh, he wrote this to new believers who lived in the city of Ephesus, which was a city in Asia Minor. And so it's called Ephesians for that reason. These are Gentile believers. And if like, what? That, that's, that means they weren't Jewish to begin with. They're Gentiles, but Jesus came and saved them. And so what's happening here is, remember, the whole concept of being a Christian is brand new to the world when this is written. There were no, no second-generation Christians. These, this is the first go at it right here. And so there was a lot of things to take care of and to sort out. And here Paul gives an explanation of the change that happens in a person's life as a result of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Look at how it starts. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead. You were dead, he said, in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. You were dead in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now working those who are disobedient. You're like, back off, right? That's a pretty heavy charge. That before you knew Christ, you were dead because of what you were up to there, it seems to say. All of us, but he backs off a little, he says, well, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. So we are born into this condition. We're born dead. What? We are born spiritually dead. We inherit original sin from our parents before us, Babies are born broken. Do you know this? Babies are, did you ever get something in the mail and go, oh, it's broken. Send it back. Anybody? That's how babies are. Babies are broken when they come. You can tell they have a broken nature by the way they act. (laughs) Right? They immediately demand, they yell. The first thing they do, they take full center stage. No! And just in case you didn't hear me, they start pooping on stuff and saying, and I'm not cleaning that up. I mean, that's a broken person, isn't it? Could you get away with that? I don't think so. So they come that way because they come with a broken nature. We are broken when we come. Something has to be done. We're born into this condition. And he says, then, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That we were born because of the sin condition as objects of the wrath of God. Now, we're going to get to that in a minute. But, verse 4, 
I'm so glad for this conjunction. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. You were dead, now you're alive, he says. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. When that spiritual truth dawns on you, I don't, you know how something can occur to your head and then it later dawns on your heart or your spirit or whatever you want to call it? When that spiritual reality that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms dawns on you, your entire prayer life will change. That you are seated with Christ in, already in the heavenly You're sitting next to Jesus at the table. That changes the prayer dynamic substantially. That's what he says. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. In other words, you think it's good now. You just wait. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's the passage. And then I want, you to, I want you to notice the before and after picture that's painted here. Thank you, by the way. Uh, the before and after picture that this passage paints for us. First of all, it says, you were dead, but now you are alive in Christ. You were born dead, but now because you came to Christ, you're alive, man. You're alive. You feeling it? I think you are, man. When I see the lights come on in you guys, the light of the Holy Spirit living on inside of you, and God showed me something when we were singing here. It was stunning. I had to put my hand up so that it was too bright. Just the light of God that he's pouring into you, into us. It's incredible. God wants to give us life. We were natural followers of Satan, but now not. not. Let me go ahead and point out the typo there in case you haven't got it. But now you are supernatural followers of Jesus Christ. You were born following Satan. What? I didn't ever follow Satan. Well, it says that's how you were born. It says, in what you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now working those who are disobedient. You're born in the wrong line. When you came to Christ, he transfers you over into the other line. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. He says, please switch lines. Now, as followers of Christ, we're in a line behind Christ. We're in a line, and the Bible says that he's leading this line in triumphal procession to heaven. Triumphal procession. That's the living line. You're in the living line. Hello? Triumphal procession. So what ought to characterize the worship services of believers? Triumph. As you guys are kind of getting, you're you're leaning in that direction. Triumph. Celebration. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Seven. Okay, Lord, better than last week. The Bible also says the change is that you were enslaved to the law, but now you've been set free by grace. The Bible says here, in this passage here alone, three times it says you're saved by grace. Three times. Grace means God is offering something to you. Not that we deserved it, but he's offering you the salvation, and he's paid for it. Grace isn't cheap. Grace isn't even free. It's just paid for. Make sure you get that, okay? Jesus Christ paid the price. 
And so what I want you to think about this morning mostly is living in a grace-based relationship with God and having a grace-based identity. So you know how you're in relationship with people, and there are different things that maybe would characterize the basis of that relationship. So you go to work, I presume. You go to work, and you have a relationship of maybe employee, employer, some kind of systems and network of relationships there. And they're based on performance. They're based on some agreement of what you're going to do and what you're going to get in return, right? And it's perfectly okay for both sides to make the demands. It's, this is what we agreed on. That's the basis of the relationship. Well, the basis of our relationship with God, at the core of our relationship with God, is this thing called grace. Grace. This unmerited favor. Not by anything we did, but just because he loves us. In the passage here, it says that our, our salvation in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Pat, he's just saying, I love you, man. I want you back. I want you in my line. I paid for you to come into my line. Will you come in my line? And then it's up to Pat to release his faith into the mechanism of the line change, which is the shed blood of Jesus Christ, or to reject it. Pat has made that decision and has placed his faith in Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand that at the core of your identity is, is grace. In 1 John 1, 1 and 2, it says, it says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Oh, this sounds good, huh? But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. Like, that's a who, isn't it? <laughs> but in, just in case anybody does sin, it's like, wow, I'm, I was almost left out of the whole picture there. In case anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, uh, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So there's something very unique and special about Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. That's why we have to bear this message, bear this kingdom, bear this reality into the city. Because God, as I said last week, is really interested in having more kids. Again, I just hope they don't come here. Okay. But I want to point out this phrase, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The phrase atoning sacrifice used to be, and is better translated, propitiation. And this is not a word that is common in our language anymore, but it's a very specific and technical word that means the appeasement of God the appeasement of his holiness specifically, and the appeasement of God's wrath. That because of our sin, the Bible says in Romans, that the wrath of God is on us. That I I mentioned to you that we are born as objects of God's wrath. And the wrath of God must be appeased. Something must be done about that wrath, or the wrath of God will come on us. And what this says is that Jesus Christ, who gave himself voluntarily, allowed himself to be pummeled and punctured and put upon the cross, that he was the perfect sacrifice, the acceptable payment, and in this regard, the appeasement. He took the punishment that was ours. He took the wrath of God on himself, and he took that for us. 
And some of you might be saying, you know, I don't like to hear that much about the wrath of God. Why did you have to go and talk about the wrath of God? And I think in so many ways, our society has become so soft that we can't even imagine a person who has a balance of love and wrath. It's like he's either one or the other. But in reality, it's a very healthy person who has a balance, lives in a balance of love and wrath. And God lives in a balance of love for us and a wrath against our sin, and that's a good thing. And let me tell you why. Because I believe God has a responsibility to have wrath for our sin. He's holy, and it's the sin that is drawing us away from him, and God has a responsibility to be true to himself as a holy God, to have wrath for the sin that is destroying the people he loves. Let me put it to you this way. So, suppose you have a 14-year-old daughter. Let me just make this a hypothetical situation and talk to you guys. So guys, put yourself in this mental place where you are the father of a 14-year-old girl. And you remember the day she was born and she came out with all that cottage cheese all over and stuff, you know, and they got her all cleaned up, and you're doing her, ah, and you took her, and at some point that day, you sat with her in a rocking chair, you looked this way, you looked that way, and, yeah, I just really love you there, and I just want you to know that I'll always be here for you, and you kissed her on the forehead, and you said little secret things to her about how much you loved her, how you were her daddy, and nothing was ever going to hurt her, because you'd be there, and you rocked her, and you took your turn for the first couple weeks getting up in the middle of the night. Then you faked like you were asleep and didn't hear after that. But, and, you know, and, you know, but you had those times with her, and she got a little... And then remember when she smiled? Maybe you were the first one to make her laugh, you know? Remember that? You remember how that just kept... And then she got a little bit bigger, and, and then she started moving around, and she was mobile, and you came home from work one day. Remember that? And she... And she came, and she was so glad to see you, and you, you took her. Remember how there's, there was a little place right here for her? You remember that? And you just sat there with her? Remember when you started reading books to her and telling her stories? You remember? Remember that? And she'd sit right there, and there was just a place that she just fit right there, and you'd turn the page, and then she got, she's smart because she's yours, and so she'd know what's on the next page. And if you tried to skip pages, she'd call you out on it, you know? You remember that? You remember that? And how she started getting bigger. Remember how she went off to school and she came home, I made this for you, Daddy. Right? Remember that? Remember how she just kept growing and she kept getting bigger and bigger and you kind of had to do this and make more room in this spot that was still hers? And then, and then she turned 14 and something happened. Let's say that you just, you know, you said something, you just had a hunch that something was wrong. So she's not acting the same. I don't know. And it's not like you're not used to her changing. You're, you're, all, you're cool with that. But it's like you just had a hunch she'd, that something's wrong. And then you found out that there was a boy. And you found out he was not a nice boy. And you found out he was into drugs. And that he had somehow captured the attention of your daughter. And little by little, your daughter just began to slip away. Let me ask you this first, Dad. Do you love your daughter any less? No. 
Let me ask you, how do you feel about that boy? Pity him. You're angry, aren't you? You're angry. And you, and, and you lay on your bed at night and you envision getting him alone. And getting your hands around his little neck, right? Because you're angry. You're angry. Why? Because this boy is the one who has borne the sin into your daughter's life who's taking her away from you in an unhealthy way and you have a responsibility to be angry at that boy. And some of you are going, oh no, he just needs somebody to pay attention to him too. Yeah, I did need somebody to pay attention to me. But Karen's dad's first responsibility was to be angry. was to be angry. That's God's job, to have wrath against sin. It's the thing that's calling you away from Him. So if there's no wrath, then sin and this love affair that God has with us doesn't have the value that the Bible says it has. But Jesus was the propitiation. He paid Paid. Paid the full price for our sin. He took all the wrath. And this is your core identity. You are living as one who has been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. That is the image that you're bearing. And I want you to understand that it's a thorough image. You are no longer damaged goods. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from those who love him. Do you love him? Then live from that core identity. You know, I've been around AA for a long time, Alcoholics Anonymous. But I've only ever been to one meeting. But I've been around a lot of people who have been a part of AA for a long time. And it's done a lot of good. And I've read the big book, and I've read... A lot of the history of AA, and I'm familiar with it, and seen a lot, a lot of good come from it. But there is one point of contention that I have and will always have with AA, and that is the way they say, Hi, my name is John, and I'm an alcoholic. Now, I think there's some good in that. You know, it's personal. It's welcoming because people generally say, Hi, John. That's all good. That's all fantastic. And it also says it's okay to be in trouble. But what I take issue with is that forever and ever and ever that person is bound to say, I am an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. Now I get that someone who is an alcoholic may struggle with alcoholism all of their lives. But is that truly the identifying characteristic that they want to announce in public? Even in a it is a public setting. Is that how, is that how we're going to get better? Is by saying, hi, my name's John, and I'm an alcoholic. On CR here, we have Wednesday nights. We have two AA meetings that meet here, one on Monday and one on Thursday. I hope if you need that, you'll come. Because as I said, I have great respect for AA. On Wednesday nights, we have Celebrate Recovery here, and there's been a modest improvement in the development of that, but it's still not fixed. 
It says, hi, my name's John, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who struggles with alcoholism. Now, I think it's great that they say, hi, I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. But I think it's pretty clear to everybody in the room that you've got an issue that you're there for. Unless you, I don't think you just had a Wednesday night to burn up. I think it's pretty clear to everybody in the room that there's an issue. Why do we characterize ourselves in these ways of addiction? It's an identity statement. It's an improvement, but it doesn't fix it. Um, the identity is still characterized by sin issues rather than a core understanding of salvation. I think if a person is in an AANAGACR meeting uh, and they're in one of those rooms, then it's safe to assume they struggle with an issue. But as long as we keep identifying ourselves by our own sin, we will not gain the victory. Listen, suppose you knew someone who every time they introduced himself and his wife to someone, he said something like, Hi, my name is John. This is my second wife, Jane, because I cheated on my first wife, Mary, in an adulterous affair that ended our marriage. What would you consider to be the chances of success in that second marriage? Is it true? Yes. But it's done. It's covered. It's done. We all continue to struggle with sin and certain issues. Every one of them. Every one of us. But that does not change our core identity. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You, need to, you are living from your sense of core identity. And I'm just saying, my name is Tom Paquette, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. My name is Tom Paquette, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, who's been set free from the law of sin and death by the Spirit of life. My name is Tom Paquette, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, who is no longer an object of God's wrath, but a son of His grace. My name is Tom Paquette, who's a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, who used to settle for scraps from the tables of Satan, but now has a full seat at the table of the Lord. Father, we invite you to come now, and as we take some time to share at your table, we, we just ask you to come and allow us a glimpse, Lord, just a glimpse of what we look like to you. If we could just get a glimpse of your side of this, We'd be changed forever, Lord. Would you tell every person in this room that the blood of Jesus Christ has fully satisfied your requirements to be made new and righteous, that we are the church, the bride of Christ, being made holy by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit? Would you show every person here, Lord, that this makes a difference? And would you show every person that we're all the same, there's not one of us better than another, but that we're each saved by your grace and all saved into the body of Christ. But would you just give us a glimpse? And as you bore this burden to the cross, Lord, for us, we just come to this table of the Lord, this bread and this cup, in an opportunity to be obedient to you who called us to do it, but also to know that if you called us to do it, you meant something by it, and there's something, something for us here, something deeper than bread and juice, Lord. So could you come and meet us? We want to be filled with your Spirit, Lord. We want to be different. We want to be 
We don't want to be good people. We want to be living people, Lord. We want to be felt. We want to be kingdom people. Father, would you come and meet us at these tables? We invite you, Lord, to come. So I'd like to invite you to come to one of these tables. There are two in the front and two in the back. And you don't have to be a member of this church. If you're, if you're looking for Jesus in your life, you're welcome at his